0: I'm really glad to be here tonight, but I'm a little surprised to be here tonight, because when uh, Cameron wrote me and asked me to speak, he said, this is a youth conference, and we want you to come because you're a theologian. Now, I don't get invited to many youth conferences anymore. I used to. Uh, you mentioned that I was a, a Baptist. In fact, I'm a Southern Baptist. That's the worst kind. Um uh, but used to, uh, Southern Baptists have something I know Episcopalians and probably Presbyterians and other good people don't have called youth revivals. Have you ever heard of a youth revival? Well, I was a youth evangelist. And growing up, we did all kinds of things uh, to get young people to come, to put on good shows. One time, I kid you not, I dressed up like the devil in a full <laughs> devil's costume and visited the local high school and stood outside and told the kids not to go to the youth revival. And, of course, the place was packed out. Uh, and uh, that's the kind of thing we usually do. Well, um, I think um, my assignment tonight is, is is a little more basic, maybe. Uh, it's the first of the talks that uh, we're going to have. I'll tell you what, I'm going to switch to this other mic because I think that'll... that'll yeah. Will this one work? That'll let work. me just use this okay, one. Don't take that one. That's the recorder. Uh oh. <laughs> yeah. I'll take this one from you. Put it right there. It okay. What's that? I'll take this one. I think it's in your. I'm going to let you grab it. If, if you put that one right there and cut that off, you'll be good. Oh, yeah? Okay. It's in your. This Sorry. does not count against your Sorry. time. Yeah. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you very much. That does this sound do better? That should, do it. It. should do it. Now, okay. Thank you, Dean. Uh, this is a lot better. Thank you so much. Well, another thing I wanted to say is I'm really glad to be here at the Cathedral Church of the Advent. I know you from all over, right? Twenty? How many states? Fifteen states and various denominations, I think. You're not all Episcopalian, right? Uh, uh, so welcome, all of you who have come here to this wonderful church in Birmingham, uh, the Cathedral Church of the Advent, that would host such a conference as this. I think is wonderful. And I'm just glad to be a part of it. And my topic that was assigned to me by Cameron Cole is to talk about what is the gospel. And so there are three passages in the New Testament I want to open up tonight as we approach this awesome topic, what is the gospel. Um, I think there are the three most important passages on the gospel in the entire New Testament. The first one is from the book of Romans, chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, I want to talk about the power of the gospel. So we'll come back to these, but you might want to mark them down. Romans 1, and then the second passage, 1 Corinthians 15, the priority of the gospel. One of the places in the New Testament where the gospel just shines with a kind of brilliant clarity, the priority of the gospel. And then uh, finally, Galatians chapter 1, the perversion of the gospel. So those are the three things I want to talk about. The power of the gospel, the priority of the gospel, and the perversion of the gospel. We begin with Romans. Paul, a servant of Christ, the Greek word is doula, slave, a bondslave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The Gospel He promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning His Son, who as to His earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the Spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power. The power of the Gospel. Later in that chapter, in verses 15 and 16, Paul says, I am eager, so eager, to come to Rome And preach the gospel to those of you who are at Rome as well. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power, the Greek word is dunamis, the dynamite of the gospel. For salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Gentile. Now, think with me about this expression in the very first verse, the gospel of God. Now, that can be taken in one of two ways. I'm yeah, not doing too well. Yeah, so, let's go good with this one. Sure, yeah. I'll, I'll, uh... You want to take one of these away? Yeah, I'll take that yeah. one away. And then, can you give me the packets in your pocket? Yeah. Thanks. I'm really sorry. That's okay. Now, this takes ten seconds, but it's already working. Okay. So the Gospel of God, Romans chapter 1 and verse 1, the Gospel of God, that can mean one of two things. It can mean the Gospel that comes from God. I mean, it belongs to God. It's His Gospel. And that's certainly a basic meaning that Paul has in mind here. Even though later on in his letters he can speak about my Gospel, because the Gospel becomes a very personal thing. My gospel. But the leading line is the gospel of God. It's God's gospel. It comes from Him. It originates with Him. It belongs to Him. The gospel of God. God's gospel. But that also has another meaning. One that is more often overlooked, I think, in our interpretation of this passage. The gospel of God not only originates with God and belongs to God. It's His gospel But the gospel of God also means it is the gospel which is about God. The gospel of God in an objective sense. That's the content of the gospel. A few years ago there was a book published called God is the Gospel. It's not a bad book. God is the gospel. God is the content of the gospel. That is what the gospel is about. It's about God. And so whenever we recite the Apostles' Creed, as we ought to do as often as we can, we begin by saying, I believe in God, the Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. Whenever we make a confession like that, we are confessing that the God we worship is the God who gives us the content of the Gospel. We confess He is the Almighty One, the Creator of everything that is seen and unseen. So I want to keep that in mind as Paul comes on and talks now about this God-centered, God-focused, god intoxicated gospel, which he says, "I am not ashamed to preach." In fact, I'm eager to come to you or at Rome. He hadn't been there yet when he wrote those words and proclaim this gospel to you because I'm not ashamed of it. Now I might just stop here and say that the word gospel uh, is not a distinctively Christian word. It was not invented by the Christians. It was already in usage in the centuries leading up to the birth of Jesus Christ. What did it mean in the ancient Roman Empire? Well, it meant Something like we would say a public announcement. There's another word that's used in the Bible a lot. Heralding. Declaring publicly. Uh, Whenever uh, the ruler of the Roman Empire, Caesar Augustus or Claudius or Nero, one of the Domitian, one of the emperors in this time would enter into a territory, into a city, there were those who went before the emperor and heralded their message, usually with the fanfare of trumpets blaring and all kinds of insignia and banners flowing. And then the herald would stand to say, and now is coming the great, the august one, Caesar, the emperor. And everyone would bow down. And so a gospel was an announcement that something great, someone great, was coming, was about to appear. An awesome person was about to be revealed. And when the Christians came, this was the understanding they had of Jesus Christ. He is the awesome one. He is Lord of lords and King of kings above all earthly emperors. And therefore, it is our responsibility to herald His coming And to tell those who are all around us and wherever we may go that the great almighty Lord of the universe who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man of the canonical gospels, this one has come and is yet to come again. That's what a gospel is. It's a proclamation. It's an announcement made in all seriousness. But it's not just an announcement that is for information's sake only. Like you read the headlines in a newspaper, if you read newspapers anymore, or you listen to the the news somewhere and they make an announcement, this is the news today, this is what happened today. The Gospel isn't that kind of information. It's a word that effects that which it declares. Now, in the Hebrew Old Testament, there's another word, called dabar, which is the Hebrew word for word. The word of God. The dabar. And a dabar in the Old Testament is a word that accomplishes that which it declares. It not only says something is happening, it's information, but it also has an effectuality about it. It makes something happen. It creates where there was nothing, something. And that's what the gospel does as well. It's not just uh, information we give out about Jesus Christ or the Christian faith or the Bible or the church. No, it is a word from God for the world that has the power within its proclamation, within its telling, to actually bring about that which is declared. Now... This is why Paul can say, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel. I don't have to be ashamed of the Gospel. Why should I be ashamed of a message like this? Because it is the dynamite, the power of God, bringing salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, but also to the Gentile. And then he goes on to describe exactly what he means by that salvation. Salvation says, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now you know, I'm sure you know, that this was the favorite Bible verse of Martin Luther. Who was an Augustinian monk. And who was weighted under the guilt of his own sin before God. And tried all of these ways to get rid of them. Fasting and... Saying all kinds of prayers and flagellating himself until his back was a bloody pulp. All these things. Could never bring himself by all of his good works and deeds and righteous acts to make himself right with God. And he came across this verse. He had read this verse many times and he always understood this expression in verse 17. The righteousness of God. To mean the righteousness by which God punishes the unrighteous. Luther was terrified of such a God. And he pictured Christ as a judge sitting on a rainbow, consigning men and women, sheep and goats, to His right and His left, to heaven and hell. But now he said when he read this verse, it came to him. That the righteousness of God, Paul is talking about here in Romans 1.17, is the righteousness by which God, without compromising His holiness, declares the sinner to be righteous because of Christ. And what a difference that made in his life. He said, once I understood that, it was as though I had gone from darkest midnight into the brilliance of the noonday sun. He said, I felt as if I were born again. That's Luther. Luther. The power of the Gospel to break the shackles of guilt and the obsession with death that haunted him by day and by night. The private demons that hanged like vampires on the soul, as somebody said. Luther had those kind of private demons. We all do. But the Gospel has the power to break those shackles and to put us in a situation of being right with God. And it does this by its own very power. Nothing that you bring to it. Now, it may sound a little strange to be saying it that way, but I think that's really true. You know what your job and my job is like? Our job as proclaimers of this Gospel is sort of like an old-fashioned mailman. Now, I know uh, that's a little bit old-fashioned. Most of us get emails and stuff like that. But there was a time not too long ago in history when there were actually people called mailmen. And they lived and they existed. And they went around from house to house putting letters in mailboxes. Now, it was never, ever, the purpose of the one who delivered the mail... To tamper with the mail, in fact, it was a federal felony to do so, to open the mail, much less write their own message on the mail. No, their job was to get the mail through. In the old, old, old days of the Pony Express, you know, they would say, over the hills and through the valleys and the rivers and the rain and the snow, we must go, go and get the mail through. That's our job. We're like the Pony Express. Our job is not to write a new message. It's not to tamper with the mail. It's to deliver the mail. To be sure it gets through. But also to remember in that bundle of letters we are charged to deliver there is one address to us as well. For no one who preaches or teaches the gospel can avoid its direct address. Well, I said there are three passages. That's one. We can talk a lot more about Romans. But let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Sometimes I'm asked to define the gospel. In fact, that's what I'm supposed to be doing tonight. What is the gospel? That's the topic. Whenever I'm asked to do that, this is the passage I always turn to first. There's a lot more, of course, to be said about the gospel, the implications of the gospel, the ramifications of the gospel. But Here you have the Gospel in a nutshell. Here you have the Gospel, the core, the heart of the Gospel expressed as powerfully and succinctly as I think you'll find it anywhere in the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15 Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the Gospel. The Gospel I preached to you. The Gospel you received. The mail got through. And on which you have taken your stand. That's a kind of important phrase. So the gospel is not just something that you, well, I'll think about it, you entertain it. No, the gospel is something, if it really grips you and grasps you in your heart, on which you are called to take a stand, to make a decision, a life-altering decision. And, And Paul is writing to people who said, you've done this. You heard the gospel which I preached. You received it and you've taken your stand on it. Here I stand, so help me God, I can do no other. Loser again. And then he goes, on oh, just say like something else. By this same gospel, you are saved. Heavy word, saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. So this is the gospel of salvation. The gospel Paul said in Romans he wasn't ashamed of because it was powerful. But then he goes on to say, for I received and passed on to you as of first importance. If you're the kind of person that circles in your Bible certain phrases the speaker is speaking on or writes a note about it, this is where you do that. As of first importance importance and what was that of first importance message that he was proclaiming which he calls the gospel by which they have been saved it is this Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and then follow a list of the resurrection appearances. That's the heart of the Gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. There is no Gospel without the cross. And that's why Paul said at the very beginning of this book, God forbid that I should know anything among you when I come to Corinth except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. There is power in the proclamation of the cross that nothing else in all of our teaching in all of our religious faith can ever come close to being a substitute for and that's why we sing about it that's why it's a part of our worship it's why it's in our teaching in our theology because it is the very heart of the gospel and what does that mean to say Christ died for our sins well it means that we stand before God in need of someone to be a sacrifice for us and that we cannot die for ourselves. We have sinned against a holy and righteous God and His wrath, His righteous wrath, the Bible uses that language, yes it does, His wrath. The wrath of God against sin which deserves to fall upon us. Jesus Christ has been a substitute for us and has taken upon Himself our guilt, our sin, our fear, Everything about us that would separate us from God. And He offers us, here's another big fancy theological word, atonement. He offers us reconciliation through faith in Him. That's the heart of the Gospel. You take that away, you have no Gospel. Now, the point I want to make here that Paul is making here is that this message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified dead, buried, risen from the grave, Calvary and Easter, together, not separated, ever, together. That message is of first importance. Now, if you know your Bible really well, and no doubt many of you do, you know that 1 Corinthians is a book that is filled with all kinds of controversy, all kinds of issues that we argue about and fight about. They did as well in Corinth. I mean, there's the question of um, you know who's going to lead the church? I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of this one. The sex in the church. The divisions. There's that issue. There's the issue of divorce. That comes up in 1 Corinthians 7. What do you do about divorce? Uh, what do you do about sexual sin in the church? Scandalous thing. What do you do about when people... Christian people sue one another in court. That's in 1 Corinthians 6. What's this whole question about eating food that has been sacrificed to idols? I mean, that's really the question of how Christians can relate to a culture that denies the most basic premise of their faith. How can they do that? And how far does my conscience need to bend in order to help this brother or sister who may be weaker in some point? All of that's in First Corinthians. And then you get to the really good stuff, you know, like uh, speaking in tongues, chapter 14. What are we going to do in work? What are women going to wear to church? Veils or no veils? You know. Uh, all that's in first. It's a book filled with all kinds of controversial issues. Now, Paul nowhere says These are not important. Uh, These are not worth your taking time to think about. Now he writes a whole book about them. 1 Corinthians. But when he gets to the end of 1 Corinthians, when he said everything he wants to say about all these controversial issues that are ripping the church apart, he says this is of first importance. This is more important than anything else I have said to you or written to you about. It is this on which you have taken your stand, it is this by which you are saved, redeemed. Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He rose again, according to the Scriptures. The priority of the Gospel. And so the Gospel is the way to Christian unity. There is no real, true, lasting unity unless there is unity in the Gospel. And that's the point Paul is making in 1 Corinthians 15. So I talked about the power of the gospel, Romans 1:16, the priority of the gospel. It's of first importance. And now, lastly, the perversion of the gospel. This is Galatians. Galatians chapter 1. Verse um, Well, let's start in verse 6. I wrote a whole commentary on Galatians, so I could talk for two or three hours about this, but, but I won't. Verse 6. I am astonished, Thaumatso in Greek. I'm bowled over. I mean, it's a strong, strong word. I'm amazed. I can't believe it. That you are so quickly deserting the One who called you to live by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no other gospel. It's not a gospel at all. Though some people are calling it, and some people are throwing the churches into great confusion over it, and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Now, St. Jerome in the early church once said that when he read the letters of Paul, he could hear thunder. You ever heard any thunder in Paul? There's a thunderstorm on every page of Galatians, it's a thunderstorm book. And it's different than any other book Paul wrote. And most of Paul's letters start like Philippians. Oh, I thank my God for you every time I remember you. and All this I love you stuff. But when you get to Galatians, there's not a single word of thanksgiving for these people. There's not a single word of love for these people expressed. None. He just blasts from the gate. Thunderstorms everywhere. I'm astonished you're deserting the Gospel. You're turning to something that's really no... Real gospel at all. You're perverting the gospel. Then he goes on to say how they're doing it. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach something to you that is other than the message of Jesus Christ that we have proclaimed, let him be under God's curse. Now I'm reading from, I don't know what I'm reading from, the New International Version. Maybe you have a different translation. Uh, The King James Version says, let him be anathema. Anathema sit. Let him be accursed. Let him be condemned. That's another translation. All those are weak. They're, They're sissy translations. Much better translation here. Let him go straight to hell. That's what it literally means. Let him be accursed by God. Let him be lost forever. If the gospel is perverted, if the gospel is changed, if you shortchange the grace of God for something that is a counterfeit, there is no way into the presence of God. Let Him be condemned. Let Him be anathema. Let Him be under God's curse. Now, I don't have time to go into a lot of detail about what was happening in Galatians. You can read my book. But, let me just make this point. The perversion of the gospel did not stop with the Galatians. It is something that continues down the course of Christian history into our own time, into our own lives today. We still have to struggle with this issue. In the early church there were, in particular, three great heretics, three arch heretics. I know that's not a popular word anymore, but I'm going to use it anyway it actually means, it's from the Greek word meaning to choose. A heretic is someone who chooses. Not just somebody who happens to be wrong. We're all wrong about something sooner or later. But a heretic is one who deliberately, willingly chooses to go against the revealed teaching of God in the Scriptures. And there are three great heretics that you need to know about. Maybe you already know about them. If not, I'll give you a five minute lesson on each one of them. The first one was named Marcion. M-A-R-C-I-O-N. He was excommunicated from the Church of Rome in 144 A.D. Marcion was a shipbuilder by trade, very wealthy. He came from the country that we know today as Turkey, Asia Minor, up to the Black Sea. Came all the way to Rome, charismatic teacher, attracted a big following. And Marcion had this one one concern. He says, I love Jesus. He talked a lot about Jesus. He was big on Jesus. But he didn't care at all for the God of the Old Testament. And so he drew a sharp, radical distinction between the God of the Old Testament, the God of anger and wrath, you know, the God who was always getting upset, and the God and Father of Jesus Christ, whom he called the alien God. He said, big difference. Those are not the same God. And in order to prove this point, he took He took the Bible the Christians were using and literally ripped out of it the entire Old Testament. We don't need that. That's the Jews' Bible. That's not the Bible for the Christians. And so the most important decision probably the church has ever made since the days of the apostles and right down into the 21st century, made a lot of the most important decision the church of Jesus Christ has ever made was to say Marcion is wrong and we will keep the Old Testament as a part of Christian scripture. Now why am I bringing out that old arcane controversy? Because the issue is still with us today. What Marcion did was to rip apart creation and redemption. But Jesus Christ holds them together. He is the one, Paul says in Colossians, in whom all things consist in heaven and earth, under the earth. He's the Lord of the cosmos, the Lord of creation, as well as the Lord of redemption. And we must never sever those. That's Marcion. Now the second heretic I want to introduce you to very quickly is Arius. He came a little bit later in the 4th century. And Arius had this idea that Jesus was great. He, he He was above every other creature. But he was a creature. He was on the side of creation. Not on the side of the creator. And so therefore we should not worship Jesus Christ. He denied the full deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus was a creature, a great creature, an exalted creature above all other, but not God. He denied the divinity, the deity of Jesus Christ. And against Him, a teacher named Athanasius rose up and declared that if Jesus Christ was not God, that He could not be our Redeemer. He could not save us. He could not rescue us from the plight of our sin. And so today, that same issue is around in the world and in the church. Is Jesus Christ the one and only divine, true Son of God? God of God, light of light, very God of very God, as the Nicene Creed says. Or is He a very great exemplar, a moral teacher, someone we should follow from a distance and learn from and appreciate, but not the Son of God? Uh, This is Thursday, Monday of this week. I was uh, back at Harvard Divinity School where I spent seven years as a student. But this time I was invited back to speak to a group of theological educators on Monday. And we met in Emerson Chapel, a room not really as large as this one, not, not as large as this room, beautifully reconstructed just the way it was on July the 15th, 1838, when Ralph Waldo Emerson entered into that room and gave a graduation speech to the students of Harvard Divinity School. It's a very famous speech in American literature, in American history. And essentially what Emerson said was, you, you students, are barns of the Holy Spirit. And yes, we admire Jesus. We can learn from Him. But we shouldn't imagine that the miracles in the Bible actually took place or that Jesus was some kind of divine being come down to earth to save us from our sins. That's an old-fashioned mythology. What really matters is the individual, our own experience. And everything just about that is wrong with American religion in the last century and a half has stemmed from that one address by Ralph Waldo Emerson in the Divinity School Chapel at Harvard. It's the me generation. It's our experience. It's what matters in our thinking rather than the reality of who Jesus Christ is and what He came to do that transforms us, that has power, the power of the Gospel in it. Well, let me mention my last heretic before he gets out the door, and, and that's Pelagius. Pelagius. Now, the first two I mentioned, Marcion and um, Arius, are from the east. They're they're from the eastern part of the Mediterranean world. Uh, Pelagius is from the west. In fact, he was from Ireland. His family name was Morgan. He had red hair. He was an Irishman. But he came to Rome, and there he encountered the great Augustine. He wasn't quite St. Augustine then, but he was a great teacher. And they came to a terrific controversy over the meaning of grace. And essentially what Pelagius said is, there is no such thing as original sin. I'm okay, you're okay, everything's okay. We just need to work at it. We just need to do better. And we can do better. There's no reason we can't. And so grace is not something that comes to us from outside of ourselves. We have to bow our heads and be humble. before. No, grace is simply the package we get when we're born. It's our own natural strength to do, to think, to perform. And Pelagianism has woven its way into every form of religion from that day to this. And I would say it's particularly the religious heresy of American culture, Pelagianism, that we can make it on our own. That we don't really need God except as a kind of prompter, a, a kind of person to help us reach our own true selves. Um, some of you remember that play maybe. It was, a, it was about Thomas a Beckett. He was a henchman for King Henry II in England in the Middle Ages and did all kinds of dirty, dastardly things for the king. But um, there comes a moment in the play where... Thomas a. Beckett comes out on the stage and he divests himself of all of his regalia, his religious garments, and the cross around his, and throws it all down and stands there in the spotlight. He cries out, Oh God, there must be more. There must be something more. That was a moment of realization for Thomas Abecket. It led him eventually to becoming a martyr of the church. He was killed. But that's the kind of grace that God extends to those who are willing to come and recognize that they haven't made it on their own. They have not and they will not. But the God of grace who reveals Himself to us in Jesus Christ is the God who comes to us and who says in the word of that verse that Frank Limehouse recommended, Come unto me all you who are toiling who are burdened, who are heavy laden. I like that old King James version. Heavy laden, weighed down. And I will give you rest. Well, the Gospel is is an awesome proclamation that we have been entrusted with. We're the trustees of the Gospel. That's what Christian ministers, Christian pastors, Christian teachers, Christian youth ministers are. We're trustees of the gospel, and there's not a greater responsibility that we have to be faithful to it and to share it as clearly and openly and uncompromisedly as we can to the effect that its power will shine through, its dynamite will break the bonds.